Hello, uh, I'm Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show, and tonight we're going to be talking about quantum metaphysics. I'm from uh, Philosophy Now magazine, and I'm talking to Manjit Kumar, who's written the book Quantum about the history of uh, quantum mechanics, and we're going to be talking about what the implication that the new physics has for how we're to think about the world and uh, our place in it. Um, now, the, the book Quantum Mechanics I found to be... Uh, the book Quantum I found to be uh, an, an understandable, humane introduction in terms of um, thinking about not only the physics but also the relationship between the people and what caused them, caused them to come to the conclusions that they did. Um, did you want to... What would you say about your book, Manjit? I mean, how would you describe it? Oh, that's, a, that's a sneaky question, Grant. Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me say uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, how would I describe my book? Yeah. Well, there's loads of wonderful books out there about quantum physics, right. and especially about the weirdness of quantum physics. Right. And uh, what sort of you know, motivated me? What's special me. about your you know, book? To, to, I mean, to I could say, but I want yeah, you to, to write say. The book was that I wanted to try and tell us the story, the yeah, quantum that's story, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a narrative. It's a wonderful narrative with some wonderfully interesting people, people that you know, the likes of Albert Einstein, and uh, you know, the, the things you hear of Schrödinger's cat, Erwin Schrödinger, yeah. the uncertainty principle, Werner Heisenberg, and I just wanted to tell a story of you know, where the quantum came from, yeah. how it was discovered. The story and behind the physics. The story yeah. behind the physics, yeah. Right. You know, a combination and of I think you do that admir- admirably well. You tell the drama of the story, not only the ideas themselves, but, I mean, you, put, you piece it together historically, which is nice. So it's how it all came together in a historical way. So it's as if, you know, we didn't know... We weren't at the state of ignorance that they were before, you know, they discovered the things. As the thing goes on. Yeah, I try and tell the story as it unfolded. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so um, I guess the first question I should really properly ask you is, what is quantum physics and why is it interesting or important? What's radical about the quantum way of looking at the world uh, as opposed to the everyday of looking at the world that we have? That's a, that's a nice, <laughs> starting, easy question to start with, isn't it? Yeah. Starting as you mean to go on. Yeah, that's right, um, yeah. Uh, well. Quantum physics, well, you know, at one level, quantum physics is very straightforward. Quantum yeah. physics is the label for physics of the, at- for, of the atom and the subatomic. Really small yeah? things, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the physics of, yeah, the atom and subatomic. Um, and, uh, you know, why is it revolutionary or why is it different? Is obviously the quantum, which we'll talk a bit more about uh, in a little bit, was discovered in 1900. Right. So, oh, can I just stop you there for a second? What, what is subatomic? Uh, this is Rosanella, who will be providing our musical entertainment and representing Joe Public as well. Well, I mean, he, we talk about 1900 here, right, right into the beginning of the, the 20th century. You know, there was still a big debate about whether atoms existed or not, you know, and, uh, and some very you know, prominent and influential physicists and chemists were involved in that debate all the way into the end of the 19th century, yeah? So uh, there were those who believed in atoms, and uh, the electron... Right, right. Which is a the orbiting the atom, yeah, a, a particle smaller than atoms, found in atoms, um, was only discovered in the late eighteen seventy, uh, 1890s. So when you talk about subatomic, you're talking about small, smaller than, than atomic, atomic. Yeah. 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 Tiny, yeah, tiny, 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 tiny. What everything physical is made of, uh, and smaller, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, but the question again is, what what is different about the quantum way of looking at the world as opposed to, like, everyday physical way of looking at the world? Well, the, 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 uh, the quantum was discovered in 1900, right? right? And it was discovered by a guy called Max Planck. All right. right? I'm not going to get into the details of its discovery, but what he, you know, the idea he had to accept was that energy yeah. right, was emitted and absorbed in bits, in packets, in chunks. As opposed to what? As opposed to the sort of pre sort of the 19th century idea, the idea that what we could now call as classical physics, where energy was a continuous thing. It's a bit like water yeah. flowing through a stream, you know? It didn't come in bits, didn't come in chunks, didn't come in packets, didn't come in quanta. Yeah. And that was, the, that was the idea that Planck was forced to sort of accept and entertain, right? So energy wasn't this sort of smoothly flowing thing like water from a tap, yeah. you know? But you It know, came in lumps. came in lumps. So-called lumps, yeah. I suppose. So quanta are little packets, packets of energy. Right. Okay. Well, that's how they were first, quantum physics first emerged. Yeah, quanta, I think, means packet, packet. doesn't it, in yeah. Greek? Uh, well, uh, let me sort of um, bring out this idea first. What are the one or two findings from quantum physics which you think everybody listening should know about? Well, the, the first idea of quantum physics is this idea that there are certain things that in the real world... Yeah. 
in the everyday world. In the everyday world, sorry, I shouldn't say real world, in our everyday world, uh, are continuous properties you'd think of. You know, you think that going from A to C means you'd have to go through, you know, B. But in the quantum world, you know, a particle can be A... Yeah. And it can be at C without ever having passed anywhere in between. So it can sort of teleport itself from one place to another without any intervening existence. That's quite weird, isn't it? That's a different thing that you can't do in the sort of, you know, everyday yeah, On the everyday region. scale of things, On the everyday yeah. scale, you know? Because it only so, applies to the really small scale. On to, 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 to the really small scale. Um, and, uh, but, you know, the quantum physics, you know, the idea of the quantum, that was 1900. And then it, the idea was developed and played with. And it was a real struggle to understand the physics that came yeah, out of that. Yeah. We can look at that a bit later oh, on. Oh, yeah, we will, but, I'm sure. you know, you asked, you know, you, you asked the, you know, the idea about why is the quantum important, yeah. called quantum physics. Well, somebody else asked me this recently, and uh, I was struggling to explain, to explain it a little bit beyond sort of bringing in, oh, it's responsible for mobile phones and you know the plasma screens, and there's the, you know most of the modern world that we take for granted wouldn't exist in the way it exists. We'd be living in some alternate reality yeah. if it hadn't been for the discovery of the quantum, sure. and the development of quantum mechanics. So we'd be living in some sort of 1920s still. Sure, but I'm interested know. in the philosophical implications yeah. of it. So why is it important from, let's say, how we're going to look at? how the world is or the nature of reality. Well, this comes out in part of the, the debate between the physicists in, as they developed and tried to understand what they were trying to do. Okay. You know? um, so maybe we can... Yeah, I, well, I was going to ask you, can you give us like a maybe uh, just a very short history of quantum physics as it leads to the... Re- to the weird stuff, you know, maybe just a couple of minutes. Yeah, of... I mean, okay, okay, just very, very briefly, a very yeah. potty sort of history. Um, quantum, as I said, was discovered in 1900. Mm. It was discovered by a chap called Max Planck. He was yeah. 42 years old. He was right. a German professor of physics. Oh, they're mostly German, aren't they? <laughs> they're mostly German. But Germans in the late 1890s had for a long time been uh, experimenting with high-tech ovens. Right. right. Now, you might think high-tech ovens, right? right? Because in the 1890s, it was a very dynamic period in physics. You had the right. discovery of the electron, X-rays and radioactivity. Right. Some of Germany's finest experimentalists were working with high-tech ovens because they were trying to heat these ovens up, and they were trying to measure the radiation that would accumulate inside these sort of you know these these ovens. Because what they wanted to try and do was to come up with a, a formula mm-hmm. that would help them make better light bulbs. Right. Right. Okay. And uh, this idea of a, a perfect oven, a black body, was like uh, a benchmark against which they could calibrate light bulbs. Because oh. what you want in a light bulb is as much light as possible, but as little heat as possible. So these ovens were going to help them try to come up with a, an equation that was going to allow them to calibrate light bulbs. You mentioned black body. What is a black body? Oh, black body is this. Look, uh, we all know about an iron in the fire. Right. We put an iron poker in the fire. Mm. As the fire, as the temperature, you know, as it gets hot, hots up, you yes. initially find that, you know, you can't really touch the poker. Then it starts to glow a dull red, a, a bright red, and then it goes for the various colours of the spectrum as it gets hotter and more intense. So what these uh, physicists were trying to do was trying to work out what's the relationship between the, the colour of the poker, the, the, the light it was emitting, the temperature of the poker, and the intensity of the light that was being emitted. Now, it seems like quite a simple problem, but they even wanted to simplify it even further, yeah. right? And this is why they came up with this concept just a, a, of the, a, a black body, which would be a perfect absorber and emitter of radiation. Right. And they could replicate that in the lab by high-tech ovens, if you like. So by, when it, so because it's perfect, so... Because it's a perfect absorber and emitter, they can make really precise measurements of the relationship between the heat and the colour of the radiation. If yes, right, especially as they're measuring instruments and devices right. improved. And it's supposed to have been this sort of idealisation. So it wasn't a real light bulb, if you like. It was this sort of thing that allowed them to come up with a, a, a perfect curve against which they could measure other stuff. And these measurements, these, these, these measurements uh, led to some data, and Planck tried to come up with an equation right. that would recreate the curves that these guys were plotting from the data that they collected, right? right? And he realised that he had this equation, and then he had spent six weeks working out the physics behind this equation. Right. right? And when he did that, and he called it the the six most strenuous weeks of his life, he decided that his equation would only work if energy was being absorbed and admitted by the walls of these high-tech ovens in packets. Right. He didn't like it. No, because they thought, all thought it was waves until that time. They and, all thought it was continuous. All continuous waves, you know? Yeah. And, they, and he thought it would come out in the wash, but they wanted the equation to work. And uh, so, you know, Planck said later we'd have to learn to live with it. But he took a long time to try to learn to live with the quantum, you know? Right. So the idea was just it comes in packets, and that was the discovery. And it, was, and it came out of practical concerns. Nobody was looking for some revolutionary new physics. It right. just popped out of Planck's attempts to explain some experiments that were being conducted that seemed a million miles away from 
the frontier of theoretical physics, if you like. You know. All right. So that right was really how it. Um, the whole idea of quanta, the quanta was introduced, and I, I think we're going to have a song now, and then we're going to get into the, some of the implications of this whole qu- idea of quantum uh, physics and what it means philosophically. All right. Well, I, at, we've got Rosanella in the studio with us. She's going to sing sing us a couple of songs. And the first song is called "A Dozen Credit Cards." A dozen credit cards, and here we go, Rosanella. Thank you. Thank you, Grant, for having me on your show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Rosanna. That, that was great. Um, you. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. That was Rosanella with a dozen credit cards. I'm talking to Manjit Kumar about quantum physics. He wrote, written the book Quantum, which is the history of quantum physics and, and uh, the science of it all mingled together. Um, and Alan, Alan is the sound engineer, and we've got Marcus in the studio too. Um, <laughs> right, uh, Alan of asapeurope.com. Well done, well plugged. Uh, right, um, we've we've talked a bit about the introduction of the idea of the quantum. Now, uh, I'm, 
know in your book that Einstein looms large in the history of uh, quantum physics. Uh, where, you know, he's like the world-famous physicist. Where does he come into the quantum story? And what was his, uh, you know, major contributions, if you like? Well, Einstein, I mean, Planck discovers the quantum accidentally in yeah. 1900. And in my book, the, the opening chapter is about Planck, and he's called the reluctant revolutionary. Right. Yeah. Um, because, like I say, in 1940, you know, he was 42 when he discovered... Because he doesn't like the implications he, of what he, he finds, he, does he? Didn't he? Like, he didn't even like the fact that, you know, energy comes up sliced and diced in right. chunks, you know. He's introduced it as a mathematical sort of convenience. He doesn't think there's any reality behind this mathematical idea. Yeah, that's Planck, yeah. yeah. That's Planck. And he publishes a paper and, you know, distinguished physicists left, right and centre look at the work and no one picks up on the quantum idea right. in Planck's work. Right. Okay. It's Einstein. Well, right. he sees it in 1901, 1902, right, that steps back. And he later says it was a bit like having the rug pulled from under his feet. Yeah. Now, in 1901, 1902, Einstein's 22, 23. You know, right. He's not in some university. He's on the verge of just beginning to work at the burn patent office. Yeah. You know, and he spends most of his day, you know, uh, examining patents, looking for weaknesses. Right. Right. And, uh, but he spends his spare time working in, in, in physics, right. and he's read Planck's paper, and what he begins to do is starts thinking about what Planck has tried to do yeah. Yeah, in the derivation of, his, of this formula called the you know, black-bodied radiation formula. Yeah. Doesn't like what Planck's done, thinks Planck's sort of jumped a few steps, fudged a few bits and pieces. So Einstein comes up with Planck's formula, re-derives it, but he re-derives it on the basis that he's treating the radiation in these boxes as if they're like particles. Right. Like a gas. Right. And gas back then, even now, but the people accepted that it was made up of particles. Those people who believed in the, you know, the kinetic theory of gases. So Einstein comes up with a formula that Planck comes up with, but he's come up with it by treating uh, light if it's made up of particles. Right, and he got, yeah. the, he got the Nobel Prize for, for that, did well, he Well, interesting. So Einstein calls this, you know, the quantum theory of light, right. the one and only revolutionary piece of physics that he ever did. Right. Now, we know this yeah, man. Right, he did special relativity, general relativity, and a whole host of other things. But the one thing he himself regarded as revolutionary was this idea that particles, you know, that, that light could also be made up of particles. Right. Right? Now, in 1905, when he comes up with this idea, for over 100 years, everybody, but everybody, has accepted that light is made up of waves. And, it, and, and in fact, they turn out to be both, don't they? I mean, that's the real thing about quantum physics for me, and I think a lot of people listening to this will think, you know, there's waves and particles. How could light be a wave and a particle at the same time? Well, just to scroll back for a second on Einstein, yeah, yeah? he comes up with this theory in 1905, and right. for nearly 20 years he's pretty much one of, like, two people who believes in the quantum theory of light. Right. Everybody know, else still thinks it's waves. Everybody yeah. still, still thinks it's waves. You know, and Einstein's done something quite nice in sort of coming up with this idea which can explain one or two things, including the photoelectric effect This yeah. right, about how electrons are emitted from metal surfaces. Yeah. That Einstein's explained that. But, uh, sorry, he's got a formula that explains uh, some of these results, but they don't like the idea of like, no. you know, the, the, of the you know, quantum theory of light, particles of light, yeah? That's because they've already proved it's waves, isn't it? That's because they've already proved it's waves. And it was about 1924, 1923, yeah. 1924, when experiments were done in America where a chap was firing X-rays, uh -huh. which are, you know, really high-energy light waves yeah. that we can't see. Electromagnetic yeah? waves. And uh, firing them at electrons and finding that what he saw was like uh, if two billiard boards had been colliding. Yeah, they, right. so the light was being scattered as if it was a ball hitting another ball, right. yeah, basically. Yeah. So it must be a particle. And that got uh, Arthur Compton, a uh, Nobel Prize for that contribution. Right, so and all of a sudden, overnight virtually, the Nobel Prizes here. overnight virtually, people began to accept the quantum theory of light. Right. Yeah. And what then happened, a year or so later, a chap, French chap, a French prince, yeah. who was also a German duke, right, <laughs> Louis de Brigue, yeah. he thinks, OK, well, if, if particles, sorry, if, if, if waves, light waves can sometimes behave as if they're particles, yeah. maybe particles like electrons can sometimes behave as they're... Like, uh, like, you know, like, like waves. So we're talking about the ordinary stuff of matter, like the, what, the physical stuff we're made of can not only be particles, but can also be waves. Yeah. Now, this is, an in this is where the becomes philosophically interesting to me because I'm thinking, how could, how could a solid particle thing be a wave at the same time? Well, so by my mid-1925, yeah. around then, people now began to talk about wave-particle duality. Right, OK. Yeah? And, and it was a struggle trying to get a handle on it. 
right? Um, and there was jokes like, you know, an electron on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday was a, was a particle, and on a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday it was a wave and it took Sunday off. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and wave calls, people, sometimes yeah. people came up with the idea. You know, maybe we could call them wave calls or something, well, you know? Yeah, I'd like to term quantum, but. But one of the people who was struggling with these ideas was Niels Bohr, right. right? who's the third great quantum pioneer. If we start with Planck and go to Einstein, it's Niels Bohr. Yeah. And Niels Bohr in... He's Danish, B-O-H-R, guys. And uh, he, Bohr had made his name by introducing quantum ideas into the atom. Right. Yeah? And um, what he... Do you want to go into the atom? Uh, or, uh, or not? I want to go into the implications of this stuff. I mean, it's like... Uh, you know, when is, when is, say, an electron a wave and when is it a particle? Okay. So this is Bohr, right? right. So uh, what Bohr had done, very briefly, he'd introduced the quantum idea into to the atom by explaining how, you know, um, electrons could jump from one energy level to another energy right. level by emitting or absorbing light. And that's particles how of light we get quantum. radiation that we see as light is by these electrons jumping from higher energy to lower, lower orbitals around yeah. what they call And, and he's the, the atom, guy who yeah. came up with the idea of energy levels within an atom. He'd sort of yeah. quantized the atom. But by the mid-1920s, Bohr is a big figure. Yeah. You know, he's a major player. He well, gets, he's, he's discovered the structure of the atom, basically. The, the atom. Yeah. And by, by the mid-20s, he's got an institute in Copenhagen yeah. where some of the most talented brilliant young physicists are hanging, out, hanging yeah, about. Yeah. And one of them is Werner Heisenberg, for example. Yeah. Another one is Wolfgang Pauli. And, in, and, and Bohr, Bohr is struggling with this idea of wave particle duality. Yeah. So he comes up with this concept. And he comes up with this concept in about 1927 when he's off skiing in Norway. Yeah. He comes up with this idea of complementarity. Which means what? Which means that for Bohr, the way he explained it, if you like, is that nature will give you the answer depending upon the question you ask. Right? So... You have to explain yeah. that. So, for example, the question being, if you do a, a, an experiment right. on light... Right. And that experiment is asking wave questions. Like the behaviour. If you do an experiment to expecting to discover a wave, you'll discover a wave. You'll discover a and wave. So this is and what, similarly for particles. If you do an experiment to ex, that's going to give you particles, you'll get particles. But what I'm asking really is. What are the difference between the two experiments? I mean, what sort of experiment do you do to get a wave? Well, for example, the, the, the famous experiment is called Young's two-slit experiment. Yeah. Right? It's, quite, it's not that difficult to visualise. Imagine you have a screen right. and it has two slits in it. And, in, and, and behind that screen, yeah, you've got a light. Right. So the light is shining on a screen with two holes in it, right. which now become a bit like two headlights in front of a car or something. Yeah. Each of those, if you like, is now shining a beam of light. Right. Onto another screen. Right. Now, where those two beams cross, yeah. you'll get this sort of uh, series of patterns on the screen. You get a wave interference you pattern. Get, you get an interference pattern, and it'll be light and dark patches. And the idea is, is that where you get the light patches is where, you know, sort of two peaks or two troughs sort of you know, yeah. meet up, and they sort of reinforce each other. And where they get the dark bits is where they cancel out. So a trough meets a peak. So they sort of cancel out. And you can see this sometimes in water waves. You know, when sort of, you know, two waves overlap, it becomes a bigger wave, or they sort of cancel out and have a bit of storage. Basically, you're, you're seeing wave effects from these beams of light, yeah. yeah. Because he would say that that experiment is a wave experiment, and what we get is the wave phenomena that you see of interference. And okay, stuff, yeah? so that's fine. So yeah. when is it a particle, then? Well, when Einstein comes up with a quantum theory of light, yeah. one of the things he can explain is a thing called the photoelectric effect. Uh -huh. And this effect had stumped everybody. Right. Imagine you've got a metal, a piece right. of metal, right. now, and you shone a beam of light on it. Now, people had expected that electrons would be emitted from the surface because energy, light energy, was hitting the, you know, the metal surface. So they thought that the greater the intensity of light that was hitting the metal surface, the greater would be the energy of right. the electrons that came off the surface. Right. But what they found, in fact, was you know, it, the energy of the electrons that were being emitted by the surface didn't vary, yeah. depending upon the intensity. What worried was the number. Yeah. Now, if you look at Einstein's quantum theory of light, in a more intense beam of light, you have more light particles packed in there. So the greater the intensity, the greater the number of light particles the greater the number of light particles hitting the metal surface. So the more electrons you're getting coming off Right, so it's so, not. So are they actually bouncing back? These are electrons. Well, electrons absorb the energy that's been shined on, on, onto right. the metal surface. They get the energy and they can sort of escape from the metal escape surface. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, basically the more the more light you shine on, the more 
light you get bouncing back. No, the more light you shine on the metal surface, yeah. You, that beam, if you thought of it being made of particles of light, would yeah. now have more particles of light in a more intense beam. Yeah. They individually, if you like, would hit more individual electrons. Right. They would absorb the elect- energy from those light particles, and more of them would leave the metal surface. Classically, right. pre-Einstein, pre-the quantum theory of light, people were expecting a more intense beam of light, meant more energy, meant more electrons. Uh, electrons with more energy being given off, not the same number. Not more electrons, but like more, more energetic, energetic electrons. electrons. Exactly, right. right. That's yeah. the difference. So, really. Yeah, that's right. So here, you couldn't explain that with the wave theory of light, for example. Right. Now, Bohr would say... This photoelectric effect thing. ...is, yeah. is a particle experiment, right. and you're getting particle answers back yeah. from the wave theory yeah, of light. Right. You know, the part, and the other experiment... The two, the, the two slits of light thing. ...is a wave experiment, and, all, and you're getting wave phenomena. Right. So this is how he tried to sort of so, square so, the circle. So this is basically we've just talked about two different um, two different experiments where you get two different types of thing for uh, one of these wave particles, like a photon. I mean, for Bohr, you wouldn't have, shouldn't have an experiment where you get both things happening. Why can't? Well, but okay, let me go, go back a bit. Why can't a, a wave be a particle at the same time? What's wrong with that idea? <laughs> You're asking here $64,000 sort of question. Yeah. You know, look, people have sort of pondered these things, yeah? But in experiment after experiment, one aspect or another manifests so itself. Basically, you're saying it's, you never get both aspects in the same experiment. Well, not as far as anybody uh, uh, has done it, uh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. So that's one of the ways he came up with the concept of complementarity because he yeah. was looking at the phenomena, right? He was looking at the experimental data and the experiments around him and he thought, hey, how can, you, how, can, how can you sort of square this concept of wave particle duality? And he came up with this idea of complementarity. For him, yeah. that was that sort of explained it. So okay. we cannot have a particle and a wave at the same time. We have to have them separately. So we're going to have a wave experience and a, and a particle. Well, a way of thinking about it would be, for example, like an electron. Everybody thinks of electrons as a little billiard ball particle. Yeah, right? this is what I'm going to yeah? ask. But yeah? anyway, so uh, but so you know, there's loads of experiments in which that's how they behave. They behave like particles, yeah? Right. But we've all heard of electron microscopes, you know, those right. wonderful images that you can get right down, yeah. in the, like these alien landscapes, they sort of reveal, you know, much more detail than a sort of an ordinary light microscope. And that's, that works because of the wave nature of the electron is being exploited uh, okay. in that technology. Right. right? Yeah. And it so, wouldn't work unless they were waves. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But so he's saying that it's not, you know, rather than think of an electron as a particle or as a wave, Depends upon the experiment. It depends what you're do. doing with and, it. And, yeah. and, and, you know, we can't help, but we all, you know, sitting in this studio, we can't help thinking of the electron as these tiny little billiard balls or yes. the proton as a billiard ball. Yeah. Well, no, I, this is what brings me on to this question, right? I mean, I think probably most people still think of atoms as like you've got one lump in the centre and then you've got these electrons spinning around it like as if they were little planets or something, yeah? But I'm sure quantum mechanics has a different view of what the atom is like. This is um, what this guy Bohr discovered, this different structure of the atom. Now, if it's not like a little solar system, what is an atom like? On it's a quantum mechanical view. You're now trying to make it difficult for me, aren't you? Well, you know, this is, you know, these <laughs> are the interesting <laughs> questions, aren't they? The difficult oh, yeah, ones no. are the okay, interesting so ones. OK, so if you go through... Let, it, 1900. Right. Right. Um, well, no, at the end of the 1890s, people are debating the, the, the question of whether atoms exist or not, and most people at that time think, oh, a bit like the Greeks. Take a lump of matter... Keep on chopping it up, and you can't chop it anymore. If, right. yeah, I think no, you, you will tell me that. Yeah, that's I, atomist. That's yeah, Lucri- yeah. Lucippus and Democritus. That's anyway. right. Indivisible, isn't yeah. it? The, the, the whole idea of where atom comes from. Yeah, that's but by means. the 1890s, the, the end of the 1890s, you've discovered people have discovered J.J. Thompson at Cambridge has discovered the electron. Right. So here's this a, wave particle. So, so you got, so you got, a, you got a, an, an electron, um, and uh, then you haven't. Then you, we start looking at the structure of the atom. People are working on the, what, you know, what, are, what are atoms. Uh-huh. And by 1911, 1913, you know, Rutherford, Ernest Rutherford at Manchester has come up with a model of the atom, the one we all grew up learning yeah, in school. Yeah, the solar system. The solar again, system, yeah. one with the nucleus is, at the middle. Which is wrong, with, by the way, everybody. With the, with the electrons circling the, 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 the nucleus, like the planets around the sun. Yeah. Now, the problem with that... Yeah, now, it granted, work. it was wrong, yeah, and it doesn't work, absolutely right. It doesn't work because... If you replace the sun by a nucleus, yeah. the positive bit of the, the atom, and replace the planets by electrons, right. Right, which are negatively charged, yeah. if they go around in a circle... Right, like a planet. Like a planet. 
Electromagnetism says that a charged particle will radiate energy. Right. So as they go around in a circle, they're radiating energy, and their orbit, if you like, decays and they collapse into the nucleus. A bit like one of those Earth satellites that whose orbit yeah. decays over time and yeah. it falls in, you know, crashes back into the Pacific or somewhere like that. It would be just like a big dynamo, a tiny dynamo radiating energy yeah, all the right. time. Yeah. That's right. And and it would collapse within the blink of a an atom would collapse within you know a fraction of a second. So yeah? it can't work. This so, idea can't so work. So it can't work. Bohr you know, the Great Dane, yeah. you know, who, <laughs> who, Dane, yeah. who comes up with the principle of complementarity, set yeah. up the Institute in Copenhagen. In 19, you know, 1912, 1913, he's working on these ideas of how to fix Rutherford's atom. And he yeah. comes up with this idea, and he basically says, there are certain orbits right. in an atom right. which an electron can occupy, and it won't radiate that energy away. Yeah, so but it's only, a fix. only very certain numbers And the of quantum them. idea he introduces into yeah. the atom is that only certain energy levels Orbits. Uh, orbits, energy levels, that electrons can occupy, exist. Only certain ones exist with an atom. And that are stable, yeah. That are stable. The electron can't just be anywhere it likes. Yeah, it can only be in a stable orbit, yeah. That works yeah, right. for a bit. Okay, for a bit, <laughs> yeah? okay. Because, you know, it works for the hydrogen atom very, very well. Right, in which terms is of very the, simple. Hydrogen atom being just one proton with one electron going around it. And it works really, really well. And it sort of explains the experimental data that people had accumulated over decades for it. But when you get to more complicated atoms... Like anything else. Like anything else. It, it didn't quite work as well, right? Yeah. And so by the mid-1920s, you know, that sort of picture has been replaced because by the mid-1920s, 1925, 26, we have the emergence of quantum mechanics. Right. Okay? Because prior to that, from 1900 to the mid-20s, right. quantum ideas, the quantum concept, the idea that things like energy came in bits. Yeah. And later, things like angular momentum was also sliced and diced I'm in atoms. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> think of momentum and think of something going around in a circle, you know. Yeah. Um, like a skater. Yeah, a bit like a skater, skater. absolutely. But, yes, but it only comes in bits, anyway. Yeah. But there are other things that are discontinuous, yeah? So, yeah. Quant- so quantum, the quantum idea is spread. Right. But the way people have, what people have done nearly, you know, for the first sort of quarter of a century is taken classical physics mm-hmm. and bolted quantum ideas here and there to try and solve problems that they've been confronted with. There's no sort of overall logical or writing structure like you have with Newtonian or classical physics. Everybody, I'm sure, is aware that... There's no can... underlying theory behind it. Yeah, all, you yeah. Know, Newton, Newton sort of managed to sort of bring some order to classical physics by having his three laws of motion. Yeah. You know, that, inco- that managed to embrace quite a lot of phenomena that you could quite explain it. Same thing with his you know, law of gravitation. There was nothing like that for quantum mechanics. And the, the desire was to try and come up with a quantum mechanics that did for the, the yeah. atomic and the subatomic like a world. a basic set of equations, what explains it all. Yeah, yeah. That, that what Newton had done for classical physics, they were looking for a theory that could do that for the quantum domain and right. the okay. that is quantum mechanics right. right now in 1926 25 instead of one yeah you quantum mechanics, whole bunch of there's two two right and one was come formulated by Werner heisenberg and it was called matrix mechanics uh-huh. now the only thing yeah. you need to know about that it just used diff- arrays of numbers Nothing called, to do with Neo. Yeah. <laughs> but, but matrices were just arrays of numbers, and he was able to manipulate these arrays of numbers to come up with, you know, measurable things like the energy of an electron yeah, and things yeah. like that. And It's a really complicated It's a complicated sort of idea, but it was, a, it was using mathematics that most people weren't familiar with. Yeah. These days, matrices are taught at GCSE level sometimes, A level certainly, but back in the 1920s, physicists were unfamiliar with matrices. Right. And even Heisenberg... So didn't, no, nobody liked it, so this brings in... Erwin Schrödinger. Right. I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, that, because what happened with Heisenberg, yeah. even though when that theory was developed, it produced the right results, most of this is found it very difficult to work with and, and visualise things with. And these are physicists yeah. we're talking about. And bright. And bright. Yeah, some right. of the brightest. Nobel Prize winning <laughs> physicists couldn't use his and matrices. Erwin Schrödinger comes up with a what's called as wave mechanics. Which is easy. Which is much easier... Right. Even though even it's still complicated, but it's much easier because yeah. it used equations and mathematics that physicists grew up with. They used yeah. differential yeah, equations. Yeah, like and, an equation f- describing a wave, basically. You know, absolutely. And people from the, you know, who were tutored from using 19th century physics, they were felt much more comfortable. It was easier to work with in most instances. Right. And so there were these two sort of rival camps until people came along and showed that they, in fact, were two different mathematical formulations of the same thing. The physics, yeah, underlying right. physics, was exactly but this the same. Still, look, you still haven't right. answered yeah, my no, question, right. which is... So we come up got... with quantum mechanics, yeah? Right. And Schrodinger, right, right 
because we talked about wave particle duality before. Right. So there's this, there's this new idea that emerges. Think of, just think of the hydrogen atom. Right. Think of the nucleus. A proton. With the electron going around it. With one electron going around it. Okay. Now, Bohr had just prescribed this. Yeah. You know, and he sort of calculated... Said, this, is why, it. this is how it is. This is it, how it is, but why? Nobody right? knew why. Now, using the idea of wave-particle duality and the fact that an electron could be a wave, right. the orbits that the electron could have in the hydrogen atom... Right were ones in which you could get a whole number of electron, a, a wavelengths right. fitted in. Because if you think, imagine, sort of, a, well, imagine some sort of, you know, a, a ring. Right. Yeah. Sort of, you know, the, a round ring, but in that ring, you can only get so many wavelengths. A whole number of le- wavelengths. So that the beginning something. joins the end. Yeah. Rather than overlaps. And so that's what, ha- and that's what meant that these were the... A wavelength, very... come on, let's get back. A wavelength is what, though? What is it's like? Uh, it's like the distance between two. So, yeah, it's the distance between two troughs or two peaks. It's one complete wave, cycle, yeah. if you like. And so, red red light and blue light and yellow light. All these ones will have characteristic wavelengths. The distances vary between one, say, fixed point, and it and its repeat. Yeah, you know, in a so cycle. So you can only get whole numbers of those yeah. in in your electron orbits. Yeah, yeah. this is what sort of this, this idea when you start talking about wave particle duality and electrons being waves as well. So there seem to be a natural way of trying to describe these orbits. Yeah? yeah, and this isn't even the complicated this stuff. This is not it? the complicated stuff. <laughs> when 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 uh, Schrödinger comes along, right, right, these electron waves, if you like, now you have to start thinking. We're, we're thinking flat at the moment, aren't we? Right. We're thinking sort of pancake stuff. Yeah, really. right, okay. Now we have to start thinking in three dimensions because we've got and complicated atoms. Because now what happens lots now? Lots of electrons. Because in. one, the, the, the word we've both tried to stay away with from yeah. quantum mechanics is probability. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah? yeah. Right. We've, we've stuck away from probability, but Schrödinger comes up. You know, there's not just Schrödinger, but the the easy way of looking at it, if you one level, is that an electron in an atom. Mm-hmm. All you can do is work out the probability of where it might be. So it's right. not in a definite place. It's not in a definite place. It's just you can give a probability of it being in one place rather than another. That's right. And you can describe a different set of probabilities. Right. And then you get these sort of three-dimensional sort of what they call orbitals and stuff where it's more likely to be and less likely to be. And yeah, but if it, isn't, if it isn't definitely in, in one place, where is it? <laughs> well, a good question. I mean, now you get into the nuts and bolts of something, the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah, okay, this Copenhagen thing, which is Bohr's interpretation of quantum mechanics, what is it? In a very sort of quick style <laughs> Well, okay, the Copenhagen, we've already touched on one aspect of the Copenhagen interpretation right. wave particle duality, right. the idea of complementarity, right. that, you know, uh, uh, something like the electron will behave as a particle or as a wave depending upon the experiment you ask. Right. Right? Okay. Yeah? We got you that. conduct. So that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of the Copenhagen interpretation was the uncertainty principle. Yeah. Right? And it was com- the uncertainty principle was formulated by Heisenberg in 1927, yeah. or discovered, whichever way you like to do it. And Heisenberg said, look, previously in classical physics, in the everyday world, you know, we can pinpoint with 100% accuracy the position and the velocity of a particle or an object. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, no a, that's a normal world, but that's in the, the quantum world, world, in the it's quantum not like world, that. it's not like that. He was saying that, look, the more you know about the position of a particle, yeah. the less you know about the momentum or the velocity of the particle. And that's mathematically provable. And there's mathematical it? stuff, you know, yeah. that, that shows all these the limits to which you can prove both. Right. So the more you know about one, the less you know about the other, to the extent where if you know precisely where a, an electron is, say, in, mm-hmm. a, in an atom, you know nothing about how fast it's going or its, you know, its momentum. Yeah. Right? The more you know about its momentum... Which means the it doesn't you know have one, according to this comp- Copenhagen, the Copenhagen right? so, the, yeah, so the Copenhagen, so, the, so for, for, for Bohr and Heisenberg, who supported his position, they began to think, well, hang on. An electron... They decided... Well, they, this is their interpretation. That an electron doesn't have a position until you do an experiment to measure its position. And you conduct and, and you do a, 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 an ob, you know sort of an observation or a measurement, you know they call it that, you know observing or measuring and, and design something to measure its position. It doesn't have one. Which is crazy. But does it mean we can we cannot actually calculate the position of an, an electron? Well, we can no, only assume it might be okay. in certain there's, there's two there's one thing that's worth clarifying slightly. You know we, we sort of skated over it a little bit. The mathematics of quantum mechanics Right. No one sort of debates the, 
the correctness of the mathematics. Yeah, it all works, of, yeah? doesn't it? It yeah. all works, and as we talked about right at the very top of the show here, there's loads of stuff in the studio that works because quantum mechanics works. Right. The problem is, is the question of interpretation. What does it mean? What is it saying? Yeah? So, um, so when Bohr and Heisenberg are trying to work out what it's all about, they come up with this idea that there is no electron... Right, and she, with a position, and you do an experiment to measure its position. Mm. Right? Quantum mechanics can give you probabilities that if you do you know, an experiment, this is the probability you might find an electron this here. Is, this here. is the philosophically interesting thing, though. Is it, how can you observe something or do a measurement on something that doesn't exist? Surely you've got to say something like, it, OK, it exists in you know, a state of probability or something like well, that. Well, yeah, right? I mean, they, you know, people do talk about, you know, the Copenhagen people talk about you know, an experiment to measure, say, the position of an electron in the hydrogen atom, right? right? He has these probabilities of where it could be, or these potentialities, if you like, you know, yeah. of where it could be, these superpositions of all the different possibilities. When you actually measure it, they sort of collapse into definite, a yeah. definite position. Because you know where it is because you've yeah? measured it. Yeah. But if you do that 100% with 100% accuracy, rather than saying, oh, it's 80%, I think it's there, you know, then you don't know nothing about its momentum. Yeah, right? uh, which means it doesn't have one, yeah. definitely. So this, is a bit, so, so this is where Einstein and Bohr and their great debate sort of begins. Right. Know, and these sorts uh, of issues. <laughs> yeah, right, and we're sort of coming near to the end of the show, so we can't go in, into this, really. But um, just a couple of minutes. And well, yeah, well, the, you know, the Einstein, well, so Bohr... Bohr, Heisenberg, the Copenhagen position is fundamentally, you know, you create, if you like, or bring into being an aspect of reality, like the position of an electron, when you conduct some measurement of it. Prior to that... So we're bringing into yeah. being physical no, reality well, by observing also, because, it. Yeah. yeah, because there's this whole... It gets really, really more complicated. What's a measurement? What constitutes yeah. a measurement, for example? Some people say it has to be done with a large-scale piece of classical equipment. Yeah. You know, but hey, look, we're all made. This is all made. This desk here is all made up of electrons. <laughs> you know, where is that yeah. sort of border? So, but Einstein was like, hang on, you know, there's an independent reality. That's his take that exists out there, and is the job of science physicists to try to work out and uncover and discover that reality. Ah, oh, okay. Well, uh, Rosanel is going to sing us another song now uh, while you all try and work out what the hell that means. Uh, and what's the next song called, Rosanella? The next song is actually is about time. In fact, well, it's called Old Time. The first song was had more politics and environmental uh, issues that we cannot solve with uh, all the plastic cards, credit cards we have. And this is one is about time that we try to Conquer, since we're talking about quantum. Just a quick check, then it's all works. This song is about time. Time that we try to conquer. Time that we try to defeat. But time.
And uh, it's nearly time for the end of the show. So uh, I feel like we've just really started getting into it. Uh, but I hope you listening have sort of just at least got some idea of the sort of paradoxical or problematic nature of uh, quantum physics. Um, I'm Grant Bartley from the uh, Philosophy Now magazine, and I'm talking to Manjit Kumar, who's written Quantum, which is the history of this quantum physics that you've been hearing about. Now, I've just got to ask a, a couple of uh, non-related, well, different sorts of questions. So what, who's your favourite figure from the history of the development of quantum theory and why? OK, well, I'm going to cheat on this one. Yeah? Because uh, it's called Quantum, right. my book. Right. But the subtitle is the einstein Bohr and the Great Debate About the Nature of Reality. Uh-huh. So instead of one, I think my two favourite characters are Einstein and Bohr. Yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah. cheating. No, I've got to you know make no. you choose no, one rather than another. I'll tell you why, why both. I'll do your Desert Island no, no, Disc no, no. thing. No, no, I'll tell, no, no. tell you why I like both. Yeah, that's right. i tell you why I like both. Because, actually, from 1927 to 1955, when Einstein died, right. they conducted a debate about the nature of quantum reality. Right. Right. 99% of the time in friendly friendly terms. It wasn't yeah. acrimonious. There were times when Einstein didn't really want to see Bohr to yeah. re- in the 1940s we wanted to replay over the same arguments again. Yeah. But in 1962, right, the night before Bohr died and Einstein had been dead for seven years, he was drawing out a thought experiment that him and Einstein had discussed in 1930. So they still hadn't, yeah. at, the, at their deaths, they still hadn't resolved what they think about yeah. quantum reality. So, yeah. so for me, these, these guys, you know, both of them, I think, are actually very it's important central figures. Einstein, because he wanted to know if the moon exists when you don't look at it. Right. Uh, and he believed it did. Well, yeah. Bohr, in a sense, said no. <laughs> so, how, yeah, but again, how does it come into existence? But that's... We that's won't get into that. Maybe if we get another chance, we'll go into the philosophy a bit more. But um, about Niels Bohr, who's the other guy debating with Einstein here, he's, he constructed the modern picture of the atom. He laid the foundations of modern chemistry because it's all about how the electrons behave around the atom. And, uh, you know, and, and in doing so, he explained the periodic table of the elements and why they're all laid out the way they are. Uh, 
he's such much a genius as Einstein, isn't he? Why isn't he as well known as Einstein? Do you think? Well, I think in Britain and probably in places yeah. like America, he isn't as well known as Einstein. But I'm sure back home in Denmark, he is. Yeah, right. But you've got to remember also about Einstein's fame. Einstein becomes world famous in 1919, yeah. right? When a British expedition goes to test out uh, the. He's one of these uh, predictions from the general theory of relativity, which is that light is bent. Right. Right, yeah? Because right. of gravity. By, by a gravitational field. So they take some photographic plates during a total eclipse of the stars that, you know, behind the sun, yeah. and they compare them to the stars six months earlier. And around, then all of a sudden, Einstein is, you know, front-page news around the world, you know, because one of the people he's over, you know, overtaken is Newton, the great British yeah. scientific hero, because he's talking about gravity. So Einstein is world famous from 1919 right. onwards, For you know. And he has the hair, yeah. and, you know, he's he has got a persona, the he's you know, got the he's got the charm, look, he's got the witch, yeah. you know. And so part of that contributes to that. It's a shame that Bohr isn't as a, you know, uh, widely known as, 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 as Einstein. But as you say, probably in Copenhagen, yeah. he's probably, they probably big him up a bit more than Einstein there. Um, so, uh, well, unfortunately, we're sort of running near the end of the show, so we can't really go into it anymore. But I just want to ask you, uh, what if people are interested in this sort of things, what other uh, events or stuff have you got coming up, Manjit, that they might come in? Well, I was going to say, like, like, like we talked about at the very beginning of the programme, I mean, my book, Quantum, is a narrative. Yeah. And there are plenty of... Uh, it goes what? into all the detail that you, anybody would want, I should say. But it's a combination of the people and the physics, and there's loads of wonderful other books out there that also just cover the weirdness of quantum mechanics. Yeah, right. uh, you know, like uh, Marcus Chown's Why Quantum Theory Can't Hurt You, as an example yeah. of one. And Marcus and I are doing a, doing a talk together uh-huh. in September at the Royal Institution, you know, where people can come along to. Where's too. that? Uh, that's in Piccadilly, the Royal Institution. Right, okay. Yeah? And so that's sort of a joint event. That's and September. That's kind of nice to look forward to. And, uh, and I'm interviewing John D. Barrow at the Oars Court Festival. Oh, on the right. 6th of July. Okay. John Burrow is a cosmologist at Cambridge right. and, uh, you know, he's one of Britain's leading cosmologists and he's brought out a new book called The Book of the Universes. All right. When he, beginning with Einstein, well, general, of them. <laughs> there's loads and loads of them, but more right. than you can shake a stick at. You know, he starts off with general relativity right. and, you know, the idea of the Big Bang and, and he did, looks at the, the, the different ideas that have come about in the last sort of 100 years. So where, cosmology. Would, where would that be? And what uh, date is it again? It's on the 6th of July. It's the... Uh, the Festival. And it's at the Prince of Tech. Okay, at the yeah. Prince of Tech. And I think it starts at 7.30. Um, it does indeed begin at half past seven until 9pm, July the 6th. Yeah, so everything from the beginnings of the Big Bang, or was there even a pre-Big Bang to, you know, the, the whole idea of the multiverse John will be discussing. Okay, uh, partly the reason why we're doing this talk now is, is in conjunction with this talk of that you're doing at the Earl's Court Festival. I think Rosanella wants to say just a little bit about what that's about. Yes, I'm, I'm here uh, singing a couple of songs. Thank you, Grant, for having me again. And, uh, but I'm a bit of a representative, a volunteer of the Earl's Court Festival, and this team is Kaleidoscope, and uh, please do go to www.earlscorefestival.co.uk. Um, it has already started. In fact, it was launched on June the 19th and is going to end on the July the 17th uh, with a street fair. There, uh, there are going to be uh, over 40 events for children of every age. So literary event, book launches, music, lots of music, etc., etc. So go and see it. Um, not, we don't have time to go into it, but... Um, www.earlscottfestival.co.uk Okay, thank you. Okay, so Manjit's book again is called Quantum. I've, my book is called The Meta Revolution and the next show of the Philosophy Now radio show will be on the 13th of July and I'll be talking to R- Ray Tallis about his book Aping Mankind. Okay, see you next show.